Welcome into another episode of Car Stories. My name is AJ, and today we are on the road. We are sitting in downtown Los Angeles with Magnus Walker in his office. I uh, got to see a very cool tour of his shop, uh, his garage where he works on cars, his parts area, his parts closet. Uh, and if you're not just a Porsche fan, but just a car fan or just a working with your hands fan, it's an absolutely impressive uh tour and collection so thank you so much for giving that to me my pleasure i appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the peterson podcast and uh it's great to have you down here in the arts district in downtown la it's a very neat district how long have you been down here been here for 20 years i actually moved from venice into downtown la in 1994 you know our uh, background predominantly is we're in the clothing industry so Getting apparel manufactured in Venice was a little bit difficult, hence the move to downtown L.A. over 20 years ago. But I'd been coming to nightclubs and rock clubs in downtown L.A. since the mid-'80s when I first came to L.A. in 86. And uh, the downtown L.A. environment to me was always pretty exciting because, you know, obviously it's pretty desolate after certain hours, or at least it was 20 years ago. Now it's sort of more of a changing environment with adaptive reuse of former industrial buildings into live work lofts and that's sort of been going on over the past 10 years and now we're sort of on the final phase of all the ground floor commercial amenities rolling in restaurants coffee shops and uh, in a sense the arts district's becoming a little bit of a hip neighborhood somewhat like a venice or culver oh, yeah. city you know there's production companies moving in and we're in the film location business so yeah i was just gonna say i uh you have a coffee shop at the end of your street. We actually uh, have two. We have one 14 feet away from where we're sat that just opened up. That's not a coffee shop. It's a 7,500-square-foot restaurant. But, uh, yeah, we do have a coffee shop opposite the 7,500-square-foot restaurant. Yeah, it's one of the, the same ones. I live up, up in West Hollywood, and it's a sort of a French-themed higher-end coffee shop. And I was thinking, for downtown, that's sort of showing the... The for good or for bad, the gentrification of this area. Do you? Do there you goes like the that? neighborhood. Is what I like to well, say. Well, I was just going to say you can look at it as two ways. You can look at it as sort of the punk rock. I was here before anyone else, and you know, I, I want to. So I, I bought this area because of what it is, and now that it's getting to be a much more affluent, much more artistic, uh, uh, you know, livelier crowd. Do you do you welcome that? And do you like that? You know, we still live in the neighborhood. We uh, no longer live in the building that we're sat in, which was built in 1902. So we celebrated 112 years wow. in this facility, or at least the building's 112 years old. But to answer your question, you know, we live 100 yards around the corner. So I got a garage full of Porsches and I walk to work. So that's how I keep my carbon footprint low. But uh, we've seen the neighborhood go from, you know, essentially truckers giving blowjobs to, uh, you know, huckers giving blowjobs to truckers type of thing. And it being a desolate area to being a sort of a vibrant, friendly, people walking around neighborhood with lots more amenities and the neighborhood's more practical and more convenient than it ever was. The flip side to that is, of course, now we're dealing with issues that we never dealt with. But, you know, traffic, parking, you know, I used to be able to rip around this neighborhood and not worry about some hipster being stood in the middle of the street with his iPhone Instagram and a photo of his $8 coffee that he just bought from the coffee shop on the corner. So, you know, progress is good. You know, it's just a changing environment. Like I say, traffic going up Santa Fe, it can now take you 10 minutes to get to the 101, where literally that used to be a 
two-minute drive. So a lot more people in the neighborhood means a lot more traffic, parking issues, but obviously changes for the better. The neighborhood's more friendly, more usable, and uh, we're still glad to be here 20 years later. So, And I... Um it's a neat thing and and i think one of the other i don't know problems or for depending on which end you are you know everything's getting more expensive here it's definitely not as cheap as it once was which is sort of like to go back to your car collection to go back to porsches porsches was a time where that was a you know sort of a if you work hard if you save a little money you could afford one um about 10 years ago earlier 911s were definitely not thought of as as collector's items as they are now. Um, how do you feel with the market going up on the value of the cars? Well, I bought my first Porsche in 1992 at the Pomona Swap Meet. So I've owned over 5911s over the past almost 25 years. And I suppose in a sense, a lot of the cars I've acquired, I often tell this story, I never really spent much money on any of them because I buy driver quality cars and you know I was sort of in a sense a little bit ahead of the current trend curve of collecting early 911s. You know, I was picking these cars up when they were affordable. You know, at one time I had six 65 911s. Now, today that's sort of a holy grail car, but 10, 15 years ago those cars were under 10 grand all day long. Yeah. One time I had five 67Ss, never spent much money on those cars, but oh, today wow. that's probably a $200,000 oh, yeah. car. For, for an sure average one, yeah. So, you know... Um, People always say to me, why Porsche? Why not Ferrari? Why not Lamborghini? Well, Porsche to me was always accessible compared to those other vehicles. And Porsche was always what I would call the everyday practical sports car. You know, you see a lot of high mileage Porsche 911s. You don't necessarily see a lot of high mileage vintage Ferraris of that same era. Because truth be told, I don't think they get driven nearly as much. They're not as practical. They're not as reliable. And back then, they were still probably five times more expensive than a 911 of a similar era. So for me, you know, I don't really follow the market that closely. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a Porsche enthusiast. I collect, and you know, I call myself a builder, collector, driver. You know, I like the whole process of everything from the chase of acquiring the car to the build of the car. But ultimately, to me, it's all about the drive. So to me, I'm not a guy that, you know, buys and sells Porsches. You know, occasionally you've got to sell one. But where the market's going is, you know, it's in a sense, I think there's a lot of non-Porsche enthusiasts driving that market up. I think the price went up, to answer your question, for a few reasons. Last year was the 50th anniversary of the 911. I think there are a lot of speculative non-Porsche enthusiasts that might be coming from other marks that were seeing Porsches still as undervalued compared to other exotic European sports cars. But for the average guy, the Porsche is still an affordable car. You know, I get lots of emails from people all the time saying, hey, you know, I followed your thread, blog, you've inspired me to acquire my first Porsche. And, you know, it's sort of great that people are inspired by what I'm doing and are now searching for their first Porsche. You know, and these are guys that might have been sport import tuner guys or, uh, you know, European sports car guys or American muscle car guys that probably weren't Porsche enthusiasts, but now are relating to Porsche in a slightly different way. Now, a couple of things I always say to these people, you know, when they're trying to find a first Porsche, there's a Porsche for every budget. And I always sort of have this somewhat stock answer. If you've got five grand, go get a 924 or 944. Mm -hmm. If you've got 10 grand, go get a Boxster. you got, let's say, 15 to 30 grand. There's a lot of choice there, you know. Yeah. 911 SCs, 3.2 Carreras, 
996s. So in essence, is a Porsche for every budget from five grand and up to obviously you have a million dollars, the sky's the limit. But uh, you know, 10 grand can get you uh, in the seat of a Porsche that you're going to have a lot of fun with. And I often talk about another reason why Porsche. The great thing to me about Porsche is Porsches are interchangeable. You know, Porsches are, you know, you can basically take that 65, 9, 11, and for the first 25 years of production, a lot of those parts are interchangeable. So you could put, you know, a 3-2 motor in a short wheelbase car if you chose to do so. And I think that's the, the beauty of the 911 platform is the interchangeability of parts and motors and pieces. And, you know, that's why it's great to be able to build an outlaw and hot rod and customize early 911s. The flip side to that is that's why it's also hard to find original cars with original motors because obviously everyone has a need for speed. And, uh, yeah. you know, as things progressed, you know, like I just said, you could upgrade that two-liter car into a 3.2 car with twice the amount of horsepower. You know, so those are the great things about Porsche, I think, accessibility. And I always talk about, for me, Porsche is a sensory car. It covers all the sensors. You know, I say it all the time. It starts with sight. You look at the car. It just looks cool, looks fast, looks aggressive. Next thing is you touch the car. You open the door with that door handle. You sit in it. The key's always on the left-hand side in the 911. So you turn that key, and it's that flat six air-cooled sound if it's an early car that's really familiar. But it's a sensory thing. From there on, it's a hear it, feel it, smell it, touch it, seat of the pants, roller coaster ride on your favorite road or wherever you want to go at whatever speed you want to go at. That's the great thing about 911s is it's the drivability of the car. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be within half an hour of some spectacular roads from where we're sat. I can be at the base of Angeles Crest Highway in 20 minutes, take that road up to 8,000 feet and drop down to Wrightwood. It's spectacular scenery up there, spectacular driving roads. And to me, that's a great thing about living in L.A., Southern California, yeah. and it's a great thing about owning Porsches in this environment is the accessibility to great driving roads. And I always say the great thing about Porsche is, first and foremost, the drive. But secondly, it's the people. You know, Porsche is a language. doesn't matter if you speak English, German, or Japanese. You know, people can relate to the car regardless of the language you speak. And I think that's ultimately one of the great things about Porsche. It's a true enthusiast car. It definitely is. And your story you've you know what's great about you is you are accessible and people can learn about you easily um they know the cars in your collection they know who you are if you go to youtube or you google your name yeah that's um, sort of the great thing about i guess instagram and facebook and having a smartphone or an iphone of you know a guy like me who really has no sort of computer background can snap a photo on an iphone and post it up and yeah people can choose to follow along for the riders i like to say and that's sort of what's happened to me really over the past two years since Tamir's film Urban Outlaw came out. So you grew up, you know, sort of famously told you, you went to a car show, you saw a turbo body Porsche, and that's sort of when the love affair started. You moved to, uh, you know, you came to work at a camp in Detroit, then you came and worked here in Venice. So in between that time up until 92, you said you bought your first Porsche. Correct. What what kind of inspired you at that point in 92 where you went, okay, now, now is the time to, I, I'm going to... Well, let me back up to being a 10-year-old kid and going yeah. to the London Olds Court Motor Show in 1977. You know, every kid growing up anywhere in the world sort of has your dream car. You know, I tell this story quite often, but I think it's a really relatable story. And from all the emails I get, it's everyone shares this same passion, this 
same story. It's just a matter of picking your choice car. Mine happened to be Porsche. It could have been a Ferrari five twelve Boxer or a Lamborghini Countach poster on the wall. But in essence, when I saw that first Porsche in nineteen seventy seven as a ten year old, you know, growing up in England, you know, I watched a lot of Formula One in the in mid late seventies, and that was sort of the golden era of motorsports. But I grew up in a working class background and didn't have access to fancy cars. So to me, it was a dream that a lot of people have. And I never gave up on that dream. For me, coming to America as a 19-year-old in 1986 was the beginning of that journey, which led up to uh, my first Porsche purchase in 1992. Truth be told, that Porsche that I bought in 1992 at the Pomona Swap Meet was the third car I'd ever owned. The first car I'd ever owned, it's funny, no one ever asked me this question, but the first car I ever owned was a 1977 Toyota Corolla 2TC that I bought for 200 bucks and passed my uh, driving test in Santa Monica. Yeah. Got my California driver's license, I think, in 87 or 88. Second car I ever bought was a Saab 900 Turbo SPG. But I never gave up on that dream of Porsche. Yeah, you- and to me, acquiring that first Porsche in 1992, which I paid 7,500 bucks for at the Pomona Swap Meet, and it was a 1974 911 slant nose uh, uh, replica car, steel-bodied conversion on a 74 911. And to me, that represented a dream come true for myself. And it was a real sense of personal achievement and personal accomplishment that I was finally able... You know, coming to America was sort of the land of opportunity for me. I don't think my story would have evolved the way it did if I'd stayed in Sheffield, England, because... The great thing about L.A., and you know yourself, is if you work hard here, it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like or what you sound like. You know, If you work hard, follow your dreams and goals, there's a lot of opportunity here and a lot of accessibility to get stuff done, whether it's clothing, film, car design, or whatever it may be. L.A.'s got all the opportunities to achieve whatever your personal goals and dreams are. And for me, I just, even to this day, you know, almost 30 years later... <clears throat> There's no roadmap to my life. It just evolves organically. And the common bond thread, though, is always sort of trying to do what I like to do. But back to acquiring that first Porsche in 92, it was a milestone moment for me. And it really was uh, a memorable moment. It was a sense of, like I say, personal achievement. But why was it a milestone? Well, I never thought I'd own one. You yeah. know, Porsche to me, you know, it was, I had that poster on the wall. It was a dream I had from a 10-year-old kid. And by the time I was... 25 that dream had come true so that was why it was a milestone really you know it never occurred to me growing up in Sheffield that I'd actually own a Porsche it was just a fantasy dream on the wall with a poster that I looked at and and it's 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 kind of neat because you can look at it as you know on one end of the spectrum you know you go oh here's a guy who's making a lot of money he wants to go buy a Porsche to show everyone he's got a lot of money but really what it is um and, and I'm not saying that in your instance I'm saying that maybe in the <clears throat> in the overall, especially now, but what it is is really here's someone who went with their gut feeling, focused on their dreams, worked hard, uh, and really wanted, felt like they're now deservant of, of their dream. You know, they worked hard enough for it and now they want to not reward themselves, but buy something that symbolizes their passion and what, what they're proud of. Yeah, I think there's a point there. I mean, people like to collect. You know, you either you know, if you look around, I collect guitars and sure. fan of all. I like vintage things, old things. You know, my background 
from the clothing end of things, which enabled me to buy my first Porsche, was selling vintage clothing and old Levi 501s. So in essence, my story is no different to a lot of other people's stories. I just like old vintage things, hence old Porsches. And, you know, my goal developed of collecting the beginning of the what became the iconic automotive legend, the 911. You know, to me, it wasn't so much about a status symbol of here's a Porsche. To me, it was, you know, here's a great driving car, which is accessible to where I was at. You know, it was a $7,500 car. But did you see it as a symbol to you personally as I've... I set out on this mission to achieve something, and I've achieved it. So th- this being able to afford a car, being able to buy my dream car as a kid, is sort of a symbol of I'm, you know, I'm on the right path, or I- I'm, you know, I'm going down the right the right way. Yeah, I guess is that to me, it just felt like the right thing to do at the time. You know, I started searching for cars in the auto trader. This is pre-internet. You know. Oh, yeah. Sports car trader came out on a Thursday. That was always an exciting moment. Yeah, the recycler, auto trader, Pomona swap me. Those to me were like the glory days of car hunting. You know, it was a little bit different to what it is today. So that was just the first stepping stone on what's grown to what I call this out of control hobby, this all consuming Porsche passion. But it's evolved over, you know, the past 22 years, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, journeys along the way. And a lot of uh, sort of turns and twists in the road that led me down this path to, you know, in from 92, I guess, to 2000, there were quite a lot of speeding tickets and fast rides through the canyons. And another pivotal point to my Porsche story was really joining the Porsche Owners Club in 2001 and doing my first track day in a Porsche in 2002. And that first track day was in my 1971 911T the cars that's become known as 277. That was the second Porsche I ever bought. I also bought that car at the Pomona Swap Meet seven years after I bought my first one for about the same amount of money. But for me, uh, back then in the 90s, Porsche was my passion, but I wasn't just solely a Porsche collector. You know, my collection at that time was a little bit more varied because even to this day, I still like variety. So in the 90s, I'll run through the cars that we had, starting with a 65 GT 350R replica Mustang with a 351 Cleveland and a Richmond 5-speed with a Detroit locker. So I had that. We had a 67 E-Type Jag Series 1. We had 269 uh, Dodge Super Bs. We had a 73 Lotus Europa. And we also had, believe it or not, a 79 308 GTB Ferrari. So back then, the collection was varied, but they all sort of shared the same... Uh, sort of common bond of each one of those cars was sort of unique and cool in its own way but truth be told as great as all of those cars were they were sort of individually good at one or two things but the Porsche sort of excelled at almost everything you know I can list those cars for example the Mustang you know was sort of fast but didn't really stop didn't really handle as well as the 911 the E-Type Jag was a great cruiser but was nowhere near as nimble and precise as the 911 the uh, Super B was great because you could race anything up to 80 in a straight line stoplight to stoplight with three of your buddies in it and a trunk full of groceries. And that was fun, you know, drag racing Vipers and Corvettes. But that was pretty That's much all, all the Super B did. The Lotus Europa was super nimble, but was like an underpowered go-kart that no one ever saw you on the road in. And the 79 uh, 308 GTB Ferrari just sort of felt clunky and sluggish compared to the 911. So each one of those cars was sort of good at one or two things, but 
The 9-11 was great at everything, it seemed, and pretty much cost about the same amount of money as the other cars. You know, I was buying cars back then at the same sort of price, separate of the Ferrari. That Those were the glory days of finding anything under 10 grand or 12 and a half grand was the max. But the moral to my sort of point here is I paid the same amount of money for the Dodge Super Beers. I did the uh, must, 65 Mustang Fastbackers. I did the Lotus Europas. I did the uh, Porsche 911. The only two cars from that era that cost more than the 911 were the Ferrari 308 GTB and the 67 E-Type Jack. So the, to put it into perspective, the Porsche was in that same price point 20 years ago as an old Mustang or an old uh, muscle car, but just sort of offered a lot more rewarding, stimulating driving experience. And once I joined the Porsche Owner Club, that was when I went down the slippery slope of, you know, fast-tracking through their driving racing program from getting short track license to time trial license to doing 40, 50 track days a year to getting cup race license and you know, racing some of these famous tracks like Laguna Seca and instructing people. And that was when my, what I like to call spirited driving was taken to the next level and where I actually became a better driver, being able to explore the limits of the car in a sort of more of a safer environment on the track. And ultimately, over the next five, six years, I did a lot of track days with a Porsche owner club and back to, uh, you know, making some great friends because the second great thing about Porsche is the people, the community. It is. So that's sort of that story there. When you got your second car, which is a 277, um, and it's probably your most seen car. Yeah, it's a car I'm most associated with, I think, because it's in most of the videos and it's a car that people relate to because it's in a lot of the magazine interviews and stuff like that. What? Um, how soon after did you start modifying your cars? Well, when I bought 277, well, what became known as 277, back then in 1999, it was just a 71 911T that had a, uh, it had already had a transplanted motor. It had a 27 CIS motor in it. And I swear to God, within two months of acquiring that car, I was already going down the road of making it into a 73 RS Carrera inspired car. I bought at Pomona Swap Meet some genuine 73 new old stock RS flares that were but welded onto the car. I bought a fiberglass ducktail, and I think within three months of owning that car, it was transformed from a stock-looking, long-wheel-based, narrow-bodied car to having an RS-flared rear and a ducktail on it and sort of looking like a uh, 73 RS Carrera. I mean, that's a car that's emulated almost as much as what I would call a Shelby Cobra. You know, there's oh, a yeah. lot of kick Cobras out there, and like I said earlier on, the great thing about early 911s is everything's interchangeable, so... You know, that car resembled a 73 Carrera pretty quickly. And so, to answer your question, it was modified uh, within the first three months. And did you, when that happened, was it, did the kind of the light go on in your head of, I want to start hot rodding Porsches? Or was it just sort of a necessity for when you were doing No, that trials? came later. But to back up to my first Porsche, the 74 911, which had the slant nose steel wide body conversion, that was a modified car. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a stock 74. You know, it was, uh, I like that slant nose body. And I think you're either, you either love the slant nose or you hate the slant nose. Yeah. But I actually like it. A lot of people seem to think it's a Miami Vice 80s looking thing. But obviously the car, you know, DP and Kramer were producing that car in the 70s. And Porsche made it an exclusive option also in the late 70s. So to answer your question, the first two Porsches I bought were not stock Porsches. But, um, I didn't think about modifying cars straight away other than what I just discussed. You know, the next 
from 2002 through 2008, that five, six-year period was just all about going down the track day slippery slope. And as I spoke about a little bit in Tamir's film, Urban Outlaw, you know, by 2008, I was sort of backing out of doing a lot of track days. And that was when I really started pursuing and expanding the collection. Obviously, I'd collected a few other Porsches in that time period and let go a couple of the non-Porsche cars. And uh, all that money that I'd spent racing, I then sort of moved over into collecting these early cars, like I spoke about, the short wheelbase cars and started this goal, this quest, you know, my holy grail to have one of each year from 64 through 73. And I suppose the first car that I really consider my first true build, other than 277, developed over time. You know, when I first went racing, that car was numbered 731. It became 277 probably 10 years ago. But the great thing about 277, I talk about it in a few of the videos, is it's never been fully restored. It was a streetable track car that I drove to the track. So it had track modifications, suspension, but was still a small displacement, you know, uh, momentum type car. It's gone through several motors, but the DNA on all the motors that have been in that car are still small displacement, 2425, short stroke, early motors where you got to, you know, they rev to over 8,000 RPM, probably 8,200, but, you know, you really got to wring the neck out of them to make, uh, you know, speed, which I like. I like that idea of really having to drive the car to get the most out of it. But to answer your question as to the first car that I really consider my true build was that silver car right there, which ironically seeing uh, the toy company Shuko has made a die-cast model out of two of my cars. The 68R uh, was an R-inspired car built on a 68 short wheelbase uh, shell. Ironically, I bought the car in Hawaii off of Craigslist and shipped it to LA and Probably from 2008 to 2009, that became my all-consuming passion of building my own interpretation of Porsche's famous 911R, which was built in 67 as a 68-year model. Porsche only made 20 production cars. You know, it was a race car. And uh, that sort of inspired quite a lot of my builds, the 911R, and then what followed that up, the evolution as I like to see it, uh, you know, back then, Porsche had the 911R, which uh, then became the TR in 68. And then by 70, the car was long wheelbase, growing wider with the uh, flares and became what became known as the ST. So uh, the first car I built really was that 68R in 2008. The follow-up car to that really was what I termed the STR, which came two, three years later, which was my interpretation of imagining you'd had that R car and then like everything I love about Porsche, it evolved into a, you know, wider, faster, more racy version, uh, which became the factory ST. And I just combined those two elements and built my own moniker STR, you know. So that was the past four or five years have really been building what I like to call these streetable, sport purpose, track based, uh, canyon carver, hot rod cars, not full blown track cars, but street cars with track aspirations that could do track days but be driven to the track and uh, sort of my area of uh, real inspiration is Porsche in the late 60s early 70s hence the sport purpose moniker and this sort of streetable take it to the track outlaw inspired build you know I build cars for myself I don't build customer cars that's what separates me a little bit from the other people out there doing similar things but what really sort of put me on the map, I suppose, and separated me from the other builders was 
just doing things a little bit differently. The cars that I build are obviously, you know, at a glance, obviously 911s, but it's the little details that separate them from the other builds solely because I never look to really emulate what the factory did. You know, I incorporated little details and tweaked them, louvered deck lids, integrated turn signals. So I wasn't necessarily duplicating. If a 73 RSR left the factory, that my inspired build of that car didn't resemble the exact way it left the factory. Because I was just adding my own individual sort of unique touches and style to the builds. What, um, you keep talking about uh, Tamir's documentary, which is on YouTube. Uh, yeah, it's a 32-minute short film called Urban Outlaw. Yeah, and that was sort of the explosion of you kind of getting out to the world. Of, yeah. Of, you know, here is a guy. That's the great thing about the World Wide Web. Is, you know, overnight, and not even overnight, in a few short hours, you go from here's a guy who lives in downtown L.A. who likes Porsches to here is an icon in the Porsche industry. I mean, in... in I you, wouldn't go that far, but... No, uh, I, I really would. I mean, when you think of celebrity or notable Porsche owners uh you have you have Jerry Seinfeld um you know you have you you have Patrick Dempsey and those are very three very very different people who have very very different collections um how, but I think we all share the same common bond no, there of drive driving the car yeah um how has it sort of changed your perception of building a car uh or working on Porsches um, changed before that documentary and now? Uh, I don't think it's really changed that much. I mean, everything we've spoken about up to this point, the 20 years prior to Urban Outlaw coming out, is it was a 20-year build-up to what became that film. You know, like I said, the first Porsche I bought was in 1992, 20 years before Urban Outlaw came out. I covered the story basically 10 years later from 2002 up to 2008 of doing a lot of track days with the Porsche Owner Club and really honing my, taking that aggressive street driving to the track and becoming a better uh, driver on and off the track. And I suppose, you know, the years between 2008 to when Urban Outlaw came out, that four-year period was when I was starting to acquire and build these what became sport purpose identifiable early 64 through 73 911s. And the backstory to Urban Outlaw, Tamir Muscovici's film, we're in the film business, you know, we own property that we lease out to production companies. So I'd been asked to, you know, appear in a couple of videos before that. And it never seemed right. It never clicked, you know. And prior to Urban Outlaw coming out, you know, I was one of those guys. That I had a little thread going on Pelican Parts called Porsche Collection Out of Control Hobby. And probably a year or so before, the very first article I think came out on me was in a Dutch magazine called RS Porsche in 2010, 2011. People had started following that thread I had online, and that was all I had going was thread on Pelican Parts and a thread on early 911S registry. This is pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram. I didn't even own a smartphone. I'm on the old Motorola flip phone. So I started documenting this collection I was building and sharing my builds and the story, and uh, that was how Tamir found me. He'd seen an article in the English magazine called Total 911 that came out in 2011. And ironically, that article was called Urban Outlaw. So we didn't even come up with that name. It was just sort of a, the story was about me being in an urban environment, downtown LA, and the collection of Porsches was somewhat more of loosely termed outlaw based, you know, hot rod based. So Tamir had seen the thread on Pelican. He'd seen a couple of articles in European magazines 
Tamir Moscovici is a Canadian Beardo brother man, and uh, he's a Porsche owner and also a commercial film director that was looking to do something a little bit edgier for his reel. You know, he'd done a lot of Budweiser commercials and was looking to expand beyond that in his own personal reel and connected with my story and being a filmmaker realized maybe there's a little bit more to my story than I'm telling and a little bit more to the story than had been published in a few of these European magazines. So he shot me an email in January of 2012, almost three years ago, said he'd seen the story and was I interested in sort of making a short documentary. His initial goal was a short YouTube documentary, five, six minute documentary. You know, at this time, you know, I figured, hey, how bad can this be? You know, it was a sort of the stars aligned. We clicked. We had an online handshake. And it became this sort of cool little story where Tamir flew down on his frequent flyer miles from Toronto. My sort of take on it was what's the worst this could happen? We're going to have four days filming and talking about Porsche and maybe get some great footage, which, which I could use on my blog. And, uh, it just turned out to be great. He hired a great crew here in uh, L.A., which sort of worked on a shoestring budget, and this became everyone's pet project. We shot over four days in 2012, February of 2012. It was all sort of random guerrilla bootleg style, but um, he had a talented team. We shot the whole film on two Canon 5D cameras. None of it was scripted. I mean, you can obviously sense I ramble on. So Tamir would say to me, what does Porsche mean to you? And 20 minutes later, he'd have all these sort of usable quotes, which ended up getting edited down into what became Urban Outlaw. Now, we didn't know if the film was going to be seen by 500 people, 5,000 people, or a million people. We really had no idea because Tamir hadn't really done anything like this before. And uh, the film took some time to come out, but the backstory I think is pretty interesting, you know. Obviously, I'd posted a little bit about this documentary I was making, and we released a three, three, three and a half minute short trailer in June of 2012. And right about then was when I started getting on Facebook, and it was pretty interesting. The first day that trailer came out was pretty exciting, and uh, it sort of went viral. You know, it got picked up by Top Gear, Top Gear England, the first day, and probably got over 50,000 views on the first day just of this trailer. And then it just kept getting blogged and reblogged over the next month. It was pretty funny. My Facebook following exploded beyond the 5,000 friends, and I had to get the fan page. And every day I'd come in, there'd be like, you know, 1,000 new followers from weird places because Urban Outlaw trailer sort of went viral. And then there was quite a bit of anticipation for when the film was coming out. And to me, being a film guy, you know, he took his time and uh, the film got into this thing called the London Raindance Film Festival, which essentially was the rainy version of the Sundance Film Festival. So that film premiered at that festival in London, September 29th of 2012. You know, and we'd gone from not thinking much to all of a sudden it's in a film festival in England. So naturally, we all flew to London and premiered the film to a sold out audience. And then we released the film online at UrbanOutlaw.tv and... Uh, August, uh, October 15th of 2012, a little over two years ago. And within two weeks of that film going out, I got a call from Robert Angelo, who was Jay Leno's producer at the time, and said, Jay Leno had seen Urban Outlaw and would I like to come down and be on the Jay Leno Garage show. And so within four days of receiving that phone call, ironically, I was at the SEMA Automotive show in Las Vegas. I snuck into SEMA on someone else's pass. 
And the only reason that's sort of memorable was I remember getting the call from Robert Angelo on a Tuesday whilst I was in Vegas at the SEMA show. And uh, five days later on the Saturday, Karen and I were down at Leno's spectacular garage and Leno was driving car number 277. And the interesting point to SEMA is to fast forward. I just returned from SEMA three, three four weeks ago where Mobile One had approached me and I was now exhibiting at the SEMA show exactly two years after I'd snuck into it on someone else's pass. You had a few cars there, didn't you? I'd, uh, yeah, Mobile One approached me, or uh, their company approached me, their agency, and uh, I had uh, 277 in the Mobile One booth along with my current project, the 67S, and Mobile One only had three cars on display at their booth at SEMA, and two of them were mine. The other one was a Resto Mod 69 Camaro that was a pretty cool car. So to answer your question, in, in that two-year period, I'd gone from, on one hand, sort of relatively unknown, sneaking into the SEMA show, to being at Mobile One, which is a Porsche brand partner. I mean, that affiliation could not have been better. They got voted one of the top 10 booths, and I was displaying two cars at the Mobile One booth at the SEMA show. So to backtrack, that two-year period since Urban Outlaw coming out, Leno was the first show I was on, and I've probably done realistically probably a good hundred magazine, blog, podcast, video, TV appearance interviews in that two-year period. And I think people found my story relatable because the film Urban Outlaw is not purely a Porsche film. It's sort of a life story of me following my dream, coming to America at the age of 19, 28 years ago, and building this clothing company, Serious Clothing, which allowed us to buy this building 15 years ago, which allowed us to get into the film location business and along the way allowed us to acquire probably more Porsches than we really need. But the common bond thread between everything I've done in that 28-year period, which Tamir outlined, I think, quite well in Urban Outlaw, was going with your gut feeling, never giving up on the dream and doing what you're passionate about. And I tell this story all the time, the common bond thread between serious clothing, the building that we're in and the Porsches that I build, they all have something that's slightly unique about them. They've all got their own individuality and they've all got their own sort of individual style you know serious clothing you could look at it and there were things that were just a little bit different the building that we're in it's a 112 year old two-story brick building that's got its own creative style and its own vibe and the Porsches are the same way and the common thread was really my own sort of personalized artistic flair or style of just putting my own little tweak my own little twist on things and I think that really came from not having any formal educational design background. I left school at 15 and just sort of followed my own path and did things my own way. And I often say, if you don't really know where the rules and boundaries are, you can sort of do whatever you want to do. So I think the common bond with the film was people related to that story. Didn't matter whether you were a Porsche guy. I got a lot of emails from people that separate of liking the cars, the great sort of positive feedback from that film 99.9 percent .9 of it was people found that story relatable and they found that story inspiring and it didn't matter whether you were building a porsche or a hot rod vw in your backyard or a muscle car it's like i always say really all car guys share the same common bond it's the need for speed it's the need to get out and drive and it's the need to build tinker and tweak and you know personalize your own project and i think that was the common bond connecting thread to the film which sort of opened the door to me, and this is a long answer to your question because there's many parts to it, but through people like Leno's Garage Show and Speed Hunters, my sort of footprint has expanded beyond the Porsche world. Obviously, last year was the 50th anniversary of the 911, and 
I'm obviously not your typical looking Porsche guy. So that was from a journalistic point of view, a pretty interesting story where I got a lot of traction on being this outlaw Porsche guy. And, you know, it sort of went beyond purely Porsche, like I've said, and the clothing and film element to what I've done opened up my story to lifestyle magazines, fashion magazines. And then also, you know, the automotive end of it just went beyond Porsche into what I like to call the muscle car guys. I have that background. We've spoke about that a little bit through people like, you know, Stance Works and Speed Hunters. It opened the door to more of what I like to call the Fast and Furious Sport Import Tuna crowd, which goes all the way from drifting to guys like Ken Block to guys doing time attack to guys doing Bonneville Salt Flat Runs. But that's a common bond thread with all car guys. So my story became relatable, but the past two years have just been a roller coaster ride of stuff that I never, ever thought would happen. You know, being in a Porsche commercial this year, I did three events with Porsche, you know, uh, and these are events that I'd always wanted to do. You know, I'd never really traveled before. I never had much interest in going to places like Pebble Beach, but Porsche invited me out to the Techno Classic Show in Essen. I went there. They invited me to the old-timer GP at the Nürburgring. I went there, and they invited me to Goodwood Revival, and I went there. So these were just opportunities that um, sort of, presented themselves and i think even porsche sort of found my story relatable and i think they realized i was bringing in a younger generation to the porsche scene you know for example porsche classic you know they have over sixty thousand parts in their catalog so i've spoken about restoring porsche 911s i haven't quite touched on the 356 but you know porsche is able to supply parts for the past 60 years of porsche production so in a sense, you know, there's a lot more people, you know, a few things have happened. I think more people are restoring Porsches for a lot of reasons. One, you touched on earlier, the value of these cars has gone up now. Some of them tenfold, so now it makes sense to restore these cars. You know, 10 years ago, it probably didn't make sense spending 40, 50 grand on a restoration of a car that was still only going to be worth 20 grand. You know, that car now may be worth 10 times that amount of money. Yeah. So these are all opportunities that have sort of come my way, but, you know, there's no... PR company behind me. It's just me and an iPhone doing things that I like to do. And there's no five-year plan. It's just, I keep calling it this open ride, open road, this journey of anything's possible, endless possibilities. So that's sort of my life story on what happened uh, up to Urban Outlaw coming out, the first 20 years of Porsche ownership. And I suppose since Urban Outlaw came out, the roller coaster ride of the past two years of, you know, just doing so much stuff. It's overwhelming you know this year i've done over 12 events four or five of them in europe for example on monday i'm being flown out to london to an event with porsche gb in london at a pop-up store so these are things as a kid i never thought would happen but they just evolve you know this year i got to drive three of porsche's iconic supercars a 959 a carrera gt and a 918 so you know it's just it's just sort of been a great roller coaster ride what was your favorite of the three it's hard to say because each one's individual in its own way. The 959 below 4,000 RPM is just like driving any other 911. You know, it's super familiar. There's nothing really drastically different once you're inside that cockpit. The Carrera GT, on the other hand, is a real sort of screamer. You know, that's that was a car, I guess, of the three, the Carrera GT, the one that was perhaps the most in, intimidating to get into because you've heard so much about that car. So that car was a, a little bit, there was more apprehension driving the Carrera GT because it demands attention. 
I drove the 918 recently at uh, Monterey, and that was a relatively, I know it's going to sound strange, but a relatively easy car to drive, <laughs> which below a certain speed, you know, was really manageable. And then you press the sport button and press the launch control mode. And before you know it, you're doing a 115 miles an hour instantly. But, you know, it's like modern Porsches, you know, those speeds are really different to, for example, I drove for the first time this year my all-time iconic favorite car, a 911R. You know, 100 miles an hour in that car feels twice as fast as 100 oh, yeah. miles an hour in a 918. But it's back to variety. I like variety of driving experience, and that's the great thing about whether you're driving a 1967 911R with 210 horsepower or 2014, 2015, 918 with four times the amount of horsepower. Oh, it's, you know all, it's I mean? all relative. Yeah, they're all thrilling. It's like, you know, I had five days in a new Porsche Turbo. I recently shot a video because... Porsche's celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Turbo, and obviously my love affair with Porsche started with the Turbo. I showed you how I'd uh, acquired a first-year 1975 right-hand drive Turbo, one of 15 cars made out of 284 of that first-year production. So I called Porsche up and said, hey, I've got this idea. I know you're all about the 40th anniversary of the 911, but no one's yet done a story where they're driving the very first Porsche, 1975 Turbo, with the current 2015 Porsche, and really showing tw uh, 40 years of Porsche Turbo, I guess, DNA and how the car has progressed in that 40-year period. So I drove those two cars back-to-back -back over a three-, four-day period and made a video coming out where it wasn't a supercar shootout because obviously the new car just trounces the original oh, yeah. car in performance, but it was more soul character and DNA and driving experience and you know, you can still see the original car and the new car's silhouette. And, you know, obviously Porsche's great at expanding and developing performance out of those cars. But so it's been a great year, basically, of driving everything from, you know, my dream nine, 1967 911R all the way up through a 918 Spider. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens next year. You talked about the opportunities you've been given. Um, and I. I assume for every one you take, there's probably a hundred you turn down. Um, you are, you're definitely somebody who could capitalize on this notoriety, uh, and you don't really seem to. There isn't a Magnus Walker line of bumpers coming out. There isn't, um, you know, you, you're not you're not doing Red Bull endorsements. You're not doing, but there are. You said you're doing. You did a Porsche commercial. You're in a Macan commercial. You have a partnership with Mobile One. You have a, a beautiful line of wheels now. Um, what sort of makes you decide who you want to partner up with? And are you ever worried the more you get seen, the more maybe your image uh, or your reputation might eventually be tarnished? Well, I'm one of those guys that I say yes to most things that make sense. I find, I find saying yes is more productive than saying no. You know, and obviously... Um, I don't think I've changed, but what has changed is now a lot of people are wanting to get affiliated with me. It's up to this point, everything I've built, I've built for myself. I've never built a customer car. I've never asked for product placement from vendors to put stuff in my car, and I know a lot of people do that. I got to this point not really needing that. It's sort of like, you know, Sex Pistols doing, Sid Vicious doing my way type of song. You know, I'm not selling anything. You know, I'm not building cars that are customer cars that I sell occasionally I do sell a car because you know I got to pay bills or you know I'm looking for something else it strikes my fancy but 
you know, other than the little Urban Outlaw merchandise line, which is essentially T-shirts and baseball caps, we're not selling anything. You know, yeah. I think that's why people also relate to my story. I'm not really selling a product. You know, I'm just sharing my story. And if people connect with it, great. If not, well, so be it. You know, I'm not really out there trying to please anybody other than myself. And I just enjoy sharing my builds and, uh, you know, sort of enjoying life. And to answer your question, this. I've been approached by a lot of things that don't make sense to me in endorsing products I'd never wear. I'm a vintage guy, so, you know, I like vintage stuff. But, you know, we've been approached by watch companies, sunglass companies, driving companies. Well, I don't wear sunglasses. I don't wear driving gloves unless I'm on the racetrack. And I'm a vintage watch guy, so unless it's an Omega or Porsche design watch, I'm not looking to affiliate necessarily with someone that I don't relate to. So for me, I just... Things happen organically. It's like Mobile One. I told that story about sneaking into SEMA two years ago and then getting approached by Mobile One two, three months before SEMA. And initially, I just wanted 277 in the booth. I said, well, that's great. That's the car I'm most associated with. But why don't we show my current build? Because SEMA's all about modifying cars. But 99% of the cars at SEMA are cars that are finished. So I managed to sort of twist someone's arm and... Mobile One had never had three cars in the booth. They'd only ever had two, so they made an exception. And it worked out great because I was able to showcase a build in progress, which I think a lot of people related to, seeing a car on a dolly, painted but half built. So that was great exposure right there. But to answer your question, I've sort of forgot what it is, but I just go with my gut. Mobile One felt right. It was sort of the right time. They were a Porsche brand affiliate. Maybe if it was Valvoline, it might not have been quite as appealing. You know, Porsches run Mobile One oil in their cars. And you look at Porsche race cars and they've got Mobile One stickers on. I'm going back quite some way. So that made sense. Uh, the Porsche Macan ad, you know, I'm driving car 277, my 1971 911T in that ad. I'm the only guy in that ad that's not a professional actor. And more importantly, I'm the only guy in that ad that's driving a Porsche that's not actually for sale in the current Porsche lineup. But essentially that's showing that there's a Porsche for every type of owner or every type of enthusiast. Which is really what that whole commercial is about. Yeah. I mean, it shows me pulling up in a 1971 43-year-old car and it shows a little kid like, you know, the kid there on the BMX bike in the park when the turbo drives by. That's a relatable story. So it sort of shows, you know, that there's a Porsche for every type of owner. So for me, you know, I'm just now sort of taking these opportunities as they come, and if they make sense, I'm just doing what I like to do. Essentially, is what it is. So, what about outside of the 911 family? Because uh, one of the things that caught my eye when I walked in is you have a beautiful 924, which is not a it's not a common Porsche. It's not a highly desirable Porsche, and that's sort of what makes it not commonly seen. So, are there things outside of the 911? family that you want to oh, absolutely get into. i mean i'm really pretty excited i talk about variety i've owned a lot of rear-engined air-cooled porsches i haven't owned many water-cooled porsches and so i like variety my current goal is to acquire one of what people may term and this is perhaps incorrectly termed the ugly duckling front engine water-cooled porsches so my goal is to have a 924 got that 924 turbo that models in 1980 which is the first year of porsche's front engine water-cooled production turbo the next car will be a 944 turbo and then i also want to get a 928 
So I want to have one of each of those three models, you know, 924, 944, maybe even 968, but definitely 924, 944, and 928 front-engine water-cooled cars. I mean, that 924 Turbo, the least expensive running, driving Porsche I've ever bought, you know, it represents a lot of bang for the buck. It represents a lot of performance. And uh, I'm actually currently chasing a 924 Carrera GT. So I used to want to make a video when I've got all three of those cars together just to showcase, you know, the underdog Porsche cars. You know, Porsche's made cars like that before. The 924 essentially replaced the 914 in 1976. So, and it's interesting to me when I look at a 928, that's a really complex, undervalued car. And I see some DNA in the Panamera from the 928. Oh, yeah. You look at those lines. I mean, we all know the story. That 928 was sort of built to replace the 911. Thankfully, it never did that. You know, Porsche's expanding their model range. And, you know, I've covered the early years from 64 through 73. That's documented pretty well. We have spoke a little bit about my collection of early three-liter first-generation turbos, 75, 6, and 7, the Three liter non intercooled small brake, small turbo tailed cars. I've covered that base. And I've spoken about variety. So the Porsches that I have on my future wish list will be newer Porsches. I want to get a nine. I've spoken about wanting to have one of each significant model 964, 993, 996, 997, and possibly 991. I'm really on the hunt for to build a 964 RS lightweight car. Sort of missed the boat because four or five years ago, a 964 was an unloved car and you could find them all day long oh under 20 God. grand. They were. And, and just to get into my personal, uh, you know, I've always, when the 993s were jumping up in price, I was sitting there going, I kind of like the lines on the 964 a little bit better. I know mechanically it might not be the best car, but I think the design wise, it's, and now they're. I mean, that's the car that jumped. Too. I mean, Four or five years ago, I was sort of eyeballing a 964 RS America, and that was a really unloved car back then that you could buy all day long for under 30 grand. Today, you can't touch that car for 100 grand. It's insane. So I think the best bang for the buck today, and people ask me this question all the time. I covered it a little bit earlier on about a Porsche for every budget, but 996 Turbo. If you've got 40 grand, there's a boatload of them out there. Oh, there's yeah. Tons of performance and tons of variety. I mean... Currently, I'm sort of chasing a 996 Turbo or GT2 or GT3. You know, maybe GT3 would be the way to go there. But it's funny. I uh, I don't know if you noticed that 997 GT2 in the garage. That's sort of uh, my buddies up Sharkworks. I was of, just going to uh, ask, is that a Sharkworks? It's a Sharkworks car. They've loaned me that car. Alex and those guys, James and uh, Ben up there, are just spectacular guys that are able to... Uh, I'm sort of the less is more uh, guy when it comes to horsepower momentum car, but uh, those guys are what I jokingly refer to as too much is never enough. They're and, more uh, is more. Yeah, and uh, you know I'm sort of starting to warm up to that a little bit. You know, I first uh, experienced what they did with the uh, 3.8 GT3 when they made it the 4.1, and that was perhaps the most intoxicating car I'd driven up to that point. You know, 560 horsepower manual. Now, I've spoke about earlier about having driven three of Porsche's iconic supercars this year, 959, Carrera GT, and 918. Well, that Sharkworks GT2 is pumping out 775 horsepower, almost 200 above what the stock standard was stated at. That's also probably a good 100 horsepower more than a Carrera GT. And that's what I refer to as the last hooligan Porsche car, manual two-wheel drive turbo. 
775 horsepower. It's intoxicating. That car is just really, really fast. I hit the rev limiter in second gear, which I can tell you is 87 miles an hour. I hit the rev limiter in third, which I think was about 125 miles an hour. And it spins tires whilst you're upshifting to all through those gears. I mean, you I, need ran, out, space for that I ran out of road in fourth gear. That, you and know? that's the only problem is as cars are getting faster and faster is you don't have places to enjoy them as no. much. But, well, I found places where you can enjoy yeah, them. You, you, you do a little hunting. You can you, you can just find, find something. Uh, I sort of have got my roads and routes mapped out and know the times to go. But it's back to variety. I keep using that word variety. So I think that sort of sums that up. Is there, and uh, you know, you've talked about what's your sort of hunting right now. Is there a money's no limit, um, one car out there that's you know sort of the unicorn uh, or the holy grail for you? It evolves. You know, I have two of my holy grail cars. That 64 911 is the beginning of everything I've lusted after and numerous other people have lusted after over the past 50 years. So I said earlier on, you know, a lot of these cars I own, I never actually spent much money on them. That 64 911 is a great example of that. Porsche made 232 cars in 1964. Of those 232, there's 59 documented surviving. Maybe there's a few more that have yet to be discovered, buried under 80s wide-bodied slant-nose conversions. But uh, of those 59 documented, there's only a couple of dozen that have matching numbers, motors, and transmissions. That car is one of those. So money, no object. That was a car I didn't spend much money on, truth be told, but was my holy grail. My latest holy grail car that I acquired was that 75 right-hand drive turbo. Porsche made 15 examples of a right-hand drive turbo out of 284 that they made in 1975. You know, that car's still in production 40 years later. Um, I don't really have an answer to that question. There's cars that are on my wish list. I've never been a just-have-one-type-of-car guy. You know, sure, there's a lot of cars I'd like parked in that garage, but, uh, you know, they're all pretty expensive cars that I can't necessarily afford. But uh, yeah. I've got a term for that. It's what I call OPP other people's Porsches. You know, yeah. I mean, I've met a lot of great people. I have to throw a shout out to my friends down in North Carolina, the Ingram family and the Ingram collection. They've got this spectacular buck called Porsche Unexpected right there. And uh, I met these guys over two years ago and uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, sort of welcomed into the family. We've driven down a, or gone to North Carolina quite a few times and we uh you know, attended an event called Porsche by Design Seducing Speed at the North Carolina Museum of Art. And the great thing about the Ingrams is I think they've got the best Porsche collection that I've seen in the country, if not the world. And uh, I'm sort of fortunate that they acquired one of my former cars, my sort of current best build to date, my 1972 STR. They acquired that car a little over a year and a half ago. And I still get vis uh, visitation rights to drive that car. They shipped it out to me last, uh, well, couple of months ago for Monterey so we shot a video of him in that car up in Monterey and the point to my rambling story is the great thing about the Ingram family is they're just super generous with all their cars I've been able to drive their 911R I drove the 68 Trans Am car I drove their 74 RS Carrera I drove their wow. Carrera GT so holy grail cars often fall into what I call OPP other people's Porsches and we're fortunate that we've been able to experience and drive and share memorable moments behind the wheel of iconic Porsches through a friendship that we developed with the Ingram family. So 
you know, it's not necessarily about having your dream Porsche in your own garage. Sometimes it's great to drive your dream Porsche that's in someone else's garage. Uh, that's actually very eloquently put that how how a Naughty by Nature song uh, I'm down to, with OPP. <laughs> relates to Porsches. But just, yeah, the community, you don't have to be able to afford a million-dollar Porsche to, to be able to drive one. Um, and and I have to say, that's the spectacular thing about the Ingram family, Bob, Cam, and Rory is... They're true Porsche enthusiasts and ambassadors. I mean, other people have Porsche collections with similar cars in them, but average people like myself and other Porsche enthusiasts never get to see them. The great thing about these guys down in North Carolina, it's strange. I never thought much about North Carolina, Charlotte, beyond NASCAR, but the sort of wealth of car culture down there is unbelievable. And oh, yeah. The great thing about the Ingram family is they regularly take these cars out to cars and coffee events down there. So fellow Porsche enthusiasts get to see what a Carrera GT looks like or a 918 or a 911R, you know, because it's one thing having these cars, but if they're just sort of sat in a museum and people don't get to see them, you know, it's, you're with the Peterson Museum, so you can relate to this story of being a custodian and <clears throat> actually sharing the history yeah. for other people to see, and that's the great thing about Porsche people, and it's really the great thing about the Ingram family. I mentioned it earlier on, it's... Porsche is a language. It doesn't really matter what you look like, what you sound like. We can all relate to the car. And uh, that's what I like about Porsche people in general. I've been around other car cultures, and I don't think that soul and feel and friendship is quite the same as it is within the Porsche community. I'll, uh, I'll leave you with this just sort of one last question. Um, we talked about earlier in 92 when you got your first 911, how that was uh, you know, a very special moment Um to you was selling that 911 to Bob Ingram uh, or him purchasing it was that sort of an, an emotional or symbolic um maybe you've come full circle that now letting a Porsche go to another Porsche luminary um uh, was that sort of seen as a you know success to you yeah for sure I mean I've owned over 50 911s I don't currently have 50 all at one go so I've you know over 20 plus years of Porsche ownership, some cars come, some cars go, some you connect with. The spectacular thing about, we'd met the Ingrams a year before they purchased that car. And the spectacular thing about them acquiring the car is this book that they just put out, they literally have everything from a Gamun Coupe to a 918, but they're all Porsche factory built cars. The SDR that they acquired from me was the first non sort of Porsche factory hot rod that they owned. And it's funny, you know, uh, I believe even Jerry Seinfeld called him and said, why'd you buy that car? And he said, well, first of all, we like it. And two, we like driving it, you know, so they get out there and drive these cars. And for me, having that car in the Ingram collection, separate of the sort of uh, visitation rights and still being able to drive it, the great thing it did is it sort of gave my build a lot of credibility, the fact that these are the guys that have got everything from a Gamun Coupe to a 918 and everything you'd want in between. Chose to acquire one of my cars was a real special, memorable moment for me, and it, I think it really sort of, in a sense, maybe elevated uh, my uh, reputation to the fact that, hey, it's good enough to be in their collection. It's sort of a special, unique car. You know, there's a place in every world for every sort of level of Porsche build, but... Uh, yeah, it was uh it worked out pretty well all around. Well, 
Magnus, thank you so much for having us. I, you know, we shoot for thirty minutes. I haven't even looked at the time, but uh, I think we went over thirty. I think we went over thirty, and uh, it, it's just been a great time. If anybody wants to check out uh, what Magnus Walker is all about, who doesn't already know, uh, go to. Um, UrbanOutlawShop.com. Yeah, if you want to see the merch, I guess the best place to go is MagnusWalker911.com. That's my blog. I really just go to YouTube, type in yeah, Magnus go to Walker. You, yeah, punch that in. I would suggest if you, you will haven't have seen, hours of content. Yeah, there's lots of videos to watch there from Urban Outlaw to some of my more spirited drive videos. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram if you want to look at pretty Porsche pictures and follow along there. But ultimately, I suppose my final parting words, are, the words I always like to use are just... Get out and drive. Pedal to the metal, fast and smooth. Go find whatever road you like to drive and whatever car you like to drive it on and go get out there and be one with the mana machine on the open road and create your own sort of memorable moments behind the wheel of your favorite car because ultimately it's all about the drive. So appreciate the opportunity. I'm a big fan of the Peterson Museum. I've been going there on and off for the past 20 years and pretty excited to see how that new facelift is going to come out and... uh, Pretty excited to be involved in any future projects that may come. I've uh, gone to a few of the cars and coffee events on the roof there, and it's always a, an eclectic bunch of cars and people. And like I've said many times during this interview, we all share that same common bond. doesn't matter whether you're a hot rod guy, muscle car guy, or a sports car guy. We all share the same passion. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I'll see you on the open road. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.